The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, it's great for us to be back in Oklahoma. Uh, My wife and I and our two kids at the time uh, lived in Norman for seven years uh, in the 90s. And of the four places that Amy and I have lived as a married couple, our favorite years were the ones here in Oklahoma. And it just, it's very tender for us to come back. We're very nostalgic about Oklahoma. Uh, My wife actually got a degree from the University of Oklahoma. We bleed crimson and cream uh, because where your money goes, there your heart will follow. (laughs) Jesus knew what he was talking about on that. And we do not like Lincoln Riley. All right, so... Even though I grew up in Muleshoe, part of my childhood, he's dead to me now. Um, It is February 2022. Two years ago, two years ago, we were watching the news wondering if this coronavirus was really going to be a thing. Thinking, you know, this might slow us down for a few months. And we have been living the slowest two years of our lives. And I don't know that we're ever going to get our sanity back. And that's not hyperbole. Our country has lost its collective sanity. Our lives have been forever changed. Trends that were coming at us slowly got put on warp drive. Things that probably were 10, 15, 20 years away are now here in terms of the social transformation of our culture. I I don't know how we are going to move forward from here, and nobody does. I mean, it's not just the pandemic and the social distancing and the economic crisis, but in the middle of all that, we had the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and a full-blown racial crisis like we haven't really seen since the late 60s. And the polarization of our country between those who wanted to Make sure that people understood that black lives matter also, but blue lives matter. And what do we do about this? And can we love everybody? Unprecedented political polarization as politicians took advantage of the polarization and began to push and distort to their advantage. And people collectively so overwrought They don't know how to manage their anxiety and it comes out in the most horrible attacks on each other. Conspiracy theories that led to an insurrection. We've forgotten about all the normal news stories. You know, like Australia burned down. Do y'all remember that? Or Haiti had an assassination. Oh, uh, Haiti, what? Oh, and we killed Soleimani, you know, that general from uh, Iran and almost had a war with him. Oh yeah, that did happen, right? All of these, what would normally be huge news stories, just barely even register with us because we've been living in the perfect storm of crazy. And it's hard to believe that we are here now. And, and, and I think collectively as a nation, we're going through post-traumatic stress disorder. We've been scrambling to understand what's been happening to adjust. Reality is up for grabs. We can't even agree on facts. You have your facts, they have their facts. We don't agree on the source of facts. We don't trust each other's news sources. Fear and outrage are the norm. People wake up and get on their phones first thing to find out what should I be outraged about today. And we're addicted to outrage. It's like our morning cup of coffee that gets our blood moving. That's the norm. But you know, this didn't start in 2020 with the pandemic. This has actually been coming for a long time, but it exploded 
during the pandemic. But really, the world changed on 9-11. That's when the world really pivoted, but we didn't understand the significance of how that was gonna go. But, but I mean, it was, it was transformed at that moment, because if you remember before 9-11, and by the way, college students don't. They do not remember before 9-11. But if you'll remember before 9-11, things were pretty cool. The Cold War was over, America was the world's lone superpower, and things were great. And we thought we were just gonna ride off into an ever-expanding economy and world power, and, and this was the American age and everything looked great. And then 9-11 came and we got a serious wake-up call, radical Islamic terrorism. And we found out we were way more vulnerable than we ever imagined. And then it's wars in Afghanistan, wars in Iraq. Then the Arab Spring in 2011 transformed the world. And the Muslim world just exploded. Millions of refugees going in every direction. Revolutions, the Syrian war. Then the Russians reemerged as a threat and went into Ukraine, took over Crimea, almost precipitating a, a major global conflict. And then they began tampering with our elections. And then Kim Jong-un in North Korea developing nuclear weapons and missiles, and, and China reemerges as a threat in a new way. And we begin to hear all these scary things coming out of Xi, and then we have that near war with Iran. Uh, and, and then Afghanistan recently falling to the Taliban, and the shame we felt after 20 years. And this is how this is gonna end. And now the Russians have hundreds of thousands troops on the border and the skirmishes have already begun between the proxies of Russia and the Ukrainians and it looks like looks like war and what are we going to do and all of this is happening all of this is happening while the US culture is going through a massive social transformation and the church is in precipitous decline. And in the last decade, the number of people who say they have no faith in any God, the nuns have doubled. And churches are doing well to hold their own before the pandemic, and now most churches are running between 20 to 60% in-person attendance. Most are probably at 40 to 60%. Almost nobody gets to 80%. And no preacher knows how many people they have at their church anymore. No elder knows who's really on the rolls and who's not. We're not sure how we can ever recover. And I, I go all over the country talking to people. And you know what I find out? Christians are just scared. We're panicky. We're losing our kids. We're losing congregations. Big congregations. Flagship congregations. Shutting down. Selling off buildings. And this panicky nature we have in our culture would, makes it understandable why a lot of Christians are just wanting to ask God, what in the world are you doing? Where are you? All of a sudden, the Psalms seem more relevant. Now, this fear, this sense that we're on the verge of oblivion, that we're about to go over the edge of the waterfall in the canoe, no matter how furiously we paddle the other direction, that sense that we have, that, that we are hanging by a thread and our culture is about to be destroyed, that's the emotional context that Jesus came into the world to find. Because first century Israel 
was a panicky, freaking out, turn on each other, at each other's throat, attack one another culture where Pharisees and Sadducees literally wanted to kill each other and sometimes did. And where the Herodians were conspiring against their own people with Herod who was in league at Rome. And the Essenes just moved out into the wilderness and waited for God to just blow it all up and start all over. It was incredibly polarized. And they thought any misstep could be our destruction because Rome, our overlord, is just going to obliterate us if we make the wrong step. And all the people who wanted to lead a military insurrection and overthrow Rome were constantly threatening and talk of Messiah could cause Rome to clamp. This was, the, this was what emotionally what it was like. We're living in a time like that. And it got Jesus killed. Look at John chapter 11, verses 48 through 50. This is after, after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And are people saying, wow, somebody brought from the dead, this is great. No, no, this is bad. Read. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for one man to die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Do you know what happens when Messiah taught gets to a certain level? The Romans send in an army, and they wipe us out. That's what's going to happen. And so for the sake of our nation, for the preservation of our nation, we have to take this man out. Why? Fear, fear, polarization, attack on the edge of destruction. Let me tell you something about the way the human brain works. The brain is really built in three layers, okay? So you have the, the part of the brain that just runs things automatically, right? That you don't even think about. And then you got another layer of brain that's kind of the lizard brain, and this is your emotions, control how you feel about stuff. And then you got the, you know, the prefrontal cortex, the more complicated part of the brain. Did you know that if the human person gets stressed out enough, fearful enough, that second layer of brain, that lizard brain, takes over, shuts down the prefrontal cortex, and we act like we are at the intelligence of lizards. Fight, flight, or freeze is all we know how to do. Here's the problem. The part of the brain you have faith with is the rational, more developed part. And when fear rises to a certain level, you cannot have faith. That's why in the Bible, fear and faith are constantly pitted against each other. That's why so often in Scripture, an angel or Jesus or God will say, do not be afraid, just believe. Because fear and faith are incompatible. And when Christians are overcome by fear, we don't have the capacity to have faith, which means we don't have the capacity to love, and we turn into those who kill their enemies instead of love their enemies. Fear is our enemy. And fearful Christians is an oxymoron. But when the gospel was born, God's nation Israel was terrified. They just saw disaster. That's why Saul of Tarsus said, strap on the guns, lock and load, boys. We're going to take them out. Let's get arrest them. Let's lock them up. We got to take these Christians out before we get taken out. The nation is at risk. And here's the crazy thing about all that. God often does his best work when things seem to be the most out of control. Always has. Because despite how things looked to the Jews in the days of Jesus and Paul, God was in the process of transforming the world with a salvation designed 
not for just Israel, but for all nations. He was not just trying to rescue the Jews. He wanted to restore a world. And despite how it looked for God's people, how terrifying, God was about to transform everything. And that's the same situation we're in now. You see, we are in a time where God is transforming the world, and there has never been a better time in the history of the world to be a Christian than right now, and American Christians are huddled up and afraid and are missing the story. We are missing the story because we have buried the lead. Jesus did not come just to make Israel great again. He came to transform a world, and God is not just wanting to make America great again. God is wanting to reach an entire world for Jesus. So despite how things look, I'm telling you, it's a great time to be alive and love a Christian. Did you know that in the last 100 years, Africa has gone from less than 10% Christian by any measure to 50% believers in Jesus Christ? We are right on the verge of a billion Africans who follow Jesus. They are the most Christian continent on the planet, and they are beginning to send missionaries to other parts of the world. In 1948, Mao Zedong Communist Revolution takes over China. They obliterate Christianity. They confiscate all the church property. They imprison all of the pastors, theologians, seminary professors who will not swear allegiance to the communist government over Jesus. They force them into prison. They torture them. They take away the Bible, every copy they can get, and they drive the church underground. And in the West, we thought Christianity had been eradicated in China. And at the time, maybe there were three million Christians in China, most of them in very Western-like looking churches that didn't fit their culture. And we're like, oh, gospel's over in China. No more Christians in China. And then in the 1990s, when Deng Xiaoping opened things up and people from the West could get in. The journalists came in and found out that the gospel had gone underground and exploded, and it was the fastest growth of the kingdom in the history of the world. And today, about 10% of Chinese people are Christians, followers of Jesus, which when you have 1.2 billion people, is about 120 million followers of Jesus. Estimates are by 2050, we're talking about 160 million followers. There are more people worshiping Jesus in China this weekend than there are probably in the United States. Certainly more than there are in Europe. You remember when Brazil and South Korea were destinations for missionaries? Did you know that Brazil and South Korea are some of the world's leading nations for sending missionaries among the world? Christianity's not in decline worldwide. It's going through a massive transformation, but it's not in decline. The center of life and vitality of the church is now south of the equator and the Far East. The Western European nations are no longer the center of the church. We actually need to catch up with what God is doing in the rest of the world. The the Christian face is not a white face and doesn't have a European origin. But then, you know, Jesus isn't from the West. He was born in Asia and he went to Africa, and he never went to Europe. The church in the West is being pruned. The gardener has come in to his vineyard, and he is cutting, and he is cutting, and we're worried he's cutting us off. But he's really just cutting us back because we got a lot of dead wood in our country. 
God's not done with us, but he is on the move today, just like he was at Pentecost. Before the pandemic, you remember back then, I know it was BC, before COVID, but it was a long time ago. But just right before that, I was at a missions conference and I heard Leith Anderson say, and I trust him, he said, if you count globally, on average, 3,000 people give their life to Jesus every hour of every day somewhere around the planet. Which means every hour of every day is another Pentecost, just not all in one place. In 1990, 80% of Christians lived in Europe or North America. By 2000, only 37% of Christians lived in Europe or North America. Some of that was the decline of church in Europe, but most of that was the explosion of the church in the global world. The majority world is increasingly Christian. In the US, churches among white middle class people are in slow decline. Well, that was before COVID. Now they're in rapid decline. But in the global south, and among immigrants and people of color in the United States, Christianity is still on the rise. But white people don't know about it because we don't see anything that's not white. We don't know about the church plants among immigrant communities. We don't know about the dynamic, dynamic churches among people of color because we only talk to ourselves. Now, how has this happened that we are in the golden age of the expansion of the gospel, unprecedented except maybe the first 300 years? How is that happening and we don't know it? Two primary reasons. Number one, churches like this one have faithfully sent the gospel all around the world for years. Thank you. Number two reason, slightly more important, God's not dead. He's not even tired. He's not even old. He just is. Because the Lord of the harvest is not waiting on us. He's doing his thing. He never retired. And God still calls us into this global mission, both locally and globally. Now, while the majority world church outside the West has 70% of the world's Christians, they only have 17% of the church's annual income. Not wealth, income. So we have a role to play here, right? Because guess who has the money? The U.S. has 4% of the world's population and 25% of the world's wealth. Do you know American Christians spend more money on dog food than we do on missions to unreached people groups? All right, I'm not going to go down that road. All right, now, we, we have all kinds of things besides money. The, the global church is asking us for help with leadership training, education, medicine, engineering, they want our partnership, but they want it in a mutual come-alongside support, not in a colonial over-the-top control. And that's what they deserve. And if we want the church to grow here, we need to get over our superiority complex and pay attention to what God is doing there. You should ask Amanda to evaluate you instead of you evaluating her. If we want to know how to be faithful and effective today, we need to pay attention to what God is doing in the majority world because that's where God is having the most impact. And if you were to ask me, what in the world is God doing today? What, God, what are you doing? Three major trends. 
you probably don't like any of them. Number one, urbanization. Urbanization. The world, over half of the world moved to the city by 2005. For the first time in human history, over half of the human population lived in the city. By 2050, it's gonna be 70% live in the city. Urbanization. In America, we have a romantic idea about the pastoral rural life, but everybody's moving to the city. Urbanization. Number two, immigration. Boy, that's made news. More people are living outside their home countries than at any time in human history. Over a billion people today are on the move. One in seven humans on the planet is an immigrant or a migrant right now. 272 million people live outside their home country. Over 750 million people would leave their home country if they could figure out how to get out. 43 million U.S. residents before 2016 were foreign born. And here's the thing, 74% of those are believers in Jesus. Now, I know this is politically destabilizing. I know we have a lot of feelings about it, but I'm telling you, urbanization and immigration are major forces. Number three, technology. We have instant global communication, and the pandemic accelerated that. It really helped us at MRN because we couldn't travel all over the world, but everybody over the world got online. Our biggest problem now is time zones because we need to be coaching and talking with people who are 7, 8, 12, 14 hours ahead of us. And so that's really, we're working some weird hours, but everybody's online. Now, if you add up urbanization, immigration, and technology, what you get is globalization. Let me tell you a little bit about globalization in Oklahoma. I found this on the internet really, really fast from credible sources, uh, I promise you. The foreign-born population of Oklahoma tripled from 1990 to 2013. One in 12, 8%, one in 12 workers in Oklahoma is an immigrant. Over half of immigrants are U.S. citizens. 6% of the population of Oklahoma, at least as of 2018, 6% is foreign-born. 45% of those are from Mexico. Vietnam and India come in second at 5% each. Guatemala is at third. Half of these people have a high school diploma and a quarter of them have a college degree. Over 300,000 Muslims live in Oklahoma. That's expected to double in the next 20 years. Now those are disorienting facts, and believe me, it's much more extreme where I live in DFW, even more so in Houston and our other big cities. This is incredibly destabilizing. And we're facing all kinds of challenges, and it creates a lot of fear, and people polarize around it. But for those of us who have been in the majority for a long time, we begin to wonder, are we losing our country? Are we losing our culture? How much diversity can we handle? And I don't know the answer to those questions, but here's the question as people of faith we need to be asking. Who's doing this? Who's making this happen? I want you to imagine God waking up from a nap, Oh, look at the world, but whoa, when did that happen? <laughs> I didn't see that coming. You know what God is doing? And he doesn't care whether you like it. God is collecting all the diverse people groups of the world into the cities of the world and giving us the technology to reach all of them within one generation. You don't have to leave your zip code to do global missions anymore because there are people groups in your zip code from parts of the world that were unreachable 20, 30 years ago. 
you can do global missions to every continent without leaving your city. And if God is doing that, do we want to fight him or do we want to join him? Do we want to go, Lord, why did you let these people come here? Or do we go, Lord, thank you for bringing these people here. It is so much easier to reach them here. Did you know that the average immigrant in the United States is supporting 15 people in their home country? And with all that money and remittance that goes back, comes status, and with status comes influence. With influence means that if they come to Jesus, the people back in their home countries are way more interested in Jesus than they ever were before. I know this makes us uncomfortable. I, I know that this is scary to us. But God is doing some amazing things and opening the world to us like never before. And if you look at this with kingdom eyes, you go, oh Lord, thank you. You've made our mission so much easier. So as uncomfortable as globalization can be and as much challenge as it creates politically, and I understand all of that, I just rejoice at that. Our son, Seth, lives in the Bronx where he reaches unreached people groups and makes disciples of Jesus from people who are from other countries, and then they scatter out. He had a group from South Korea that he started a Bible study with. They went back to Seoul and started a church. All kinds of people from around the world. That's just fascinating. You have an opportunity to reach all kinds of people. We have got to get over the myth of salt water that you have to cross an ocean to do mission. You don't have to go anywhere except go to that person who's sitting by themselves in the same restaurant to have an international conversation or friend. It's the greatest opportunity of our lifetimes. And, and the most amazing story of all is the opening up of the Muslim world because for 1,400 years since 610, when Muhammad began his work, for 1,400 years the Islamic world was completely unreachable to Christians. It was just impenetrable. But ISIS and warfare and terrorism have cracked open the Muslim world and people are coming to Jesus. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 15 years than in 1,400 years before combined. A brother from Morocco in 2016 at a Muslim evangelism conference stood up to give his country report and one of our staff members was there and he began his speech this way. I thank God for ISIS because they're making it possible for my people to come to know Jesus. Hundreds of thousands, millions actually, refugees from the Middle Eastern countries have flowed through Greece into Europe. Four out of seven of them report having visions and dreams of Jesus along the way. They are coming seeking. I have had so many Muslim background people tell me we are tired of Mohammed, he is a man of war. We need Jesus because he is a man of peace. It's phenomenal. Uh, people are leaving inaccessible countries and are going to places with religious freedom. And yet to this day, 86% of Muslims have never met a follower of Jesus Christ. But they are coming by the hundreds. Half a million Afghans are expected to come to Greece this next year just because of the Taliban takeover of their country. Did you know the country that has the fastest growing Christian population right now? Iran. Iran. For the last several years, they've been growing at about a 12% growth rate, Christians. In the last couple years, it's been closer to 20%. There is so much hunger for Jesus there. 
You know who had workers in Afghanistan on the ground when the Taliban took over? Iranians who had sent missionaries into Afghanistan. Phenomenal. So, you know, at MRN, one of our big projects, we call the Mediterranean Rim Initiative, we've been putting missionaries around the Mediterranean to reach Muslim background people. We got five teams in two countries, and we've got another team. We got a group of Cubans that are moving to Spanish Morocco uh, in North Africa. Um, and already we're just seeing some tremendous, let me show you some pictures. Uh, let's throw some of these pictures up here. On the left, that's a group of Syrian followers of Jesus who are baptizing another person into Jesus at the spot where Lydia was baptized historically. A group of people on a Bible tour came there to Philippi to see where Lydia was baptized, according to tradition, and they found a group of Syrians baptizing new believers in Jesus. And next to that, you see what church looks like for people who live in a refugee camp in Greece as they just sit around drinking tea and they were reading Romans 8 that day. And the big argument was, when the war is over and we can go back to Syria, will everybody believe in Jesus or maybe just like half of the people? Because everybody's gonna wanna know what we have learned. Let me show you this next picture. This, this guy, we're gonna call him, uh, we're gonna call him Mohammed. It's not his name. Uh, but uh, he's the guy on the far left holding the Bible and they're praying over a woman who's about to be baptized. Next to them are some missionaries that we trained. The guy on the right is from Hungary. His wife is from Japan. They're working with people from Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, uh, and uh, Iran in Greece. And go to that next picture, you'll see what a baptism looks like. I'm sorry we have to pixelate faces, but they're targets of violence from the Islamic radicals in the, in the camps. Um, that guy, in October of 2019, had baptized 500 people in Greece. He's a refugee. And he's partnering with this Hungarian-Japanese couple that came from the United States. And, and just the people that they have led to the Lord have moved to nine other countries and started churches. But they met Jesus in Greece. That's the world we live in. That's what God is doing. So you say, what in the world is God doing? <laughs> God's transforming the world one heart at a time. God is bringing people from every nation, race, tribe, and language together to form one new people who are gonna inherit the new heaven and the new earth when all of creation is liberated from its bondage and set free to enjoy the gloriousness he created for his new creations, us. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There's a brother named Abdul in Athens, about 2017, who told me, I was a Muslim, my father was a Muslim, his father was a Muslim, going back a thousand generations, and Allah was far away and we could not know him, but now Jesus lives in here. He was trained by the Russians to work on MiG fighter jets. And he told me, we used to be enemies, but now we are brothers, we are one. Hmm. See, because the love of God is bigger than the conflict between countries or the conflict within countries because Jesus is our life and our peace.
and he's healing a world. So the question, how can we join what God is doing? How can we join what God is doing? I got six quick ideas for you. Number one, don't give in to cynicism. Stop watching so much news. Stop it. Stop ODing on the bad news because the good news is stronger than the bad news. Take courage, God is winning. Number two, do not let political leaders play on your fears and cause you to lose your love for the world. As a follower of Jesus, you have no enemies, but if you do, you were commanded to love them. Do not let political leaders turn you into a hater. Do not let them stoke your fears. Number three, invest globally. As I said, the developing world has 70% of the world's Christians, but 17% of the church's income. Continue to be involved, if for no other reason, just so you can learn from what God is doing in the world because of your connections. Fourth, commit to pray globally. Pray globally. You can go to www.medrim.org and sign up, and we'll send you a monthly email, but, but pray for Amanda, who, by the way, is phenomenal. Met her in 1990. She doesn't remember this because that was 40 pounds ago. But amazing. You are doing some phenomenal things around the world. Pray for these people. Fifth, ask God if he's calling you to go. Whether it's short term, mid term, or long term. That couple I just from Hungary and Japan, they're empty nesters. and they launched out onto a new mission as a second career. You're not too old to be involved. The question is how? And sixth, start here with the people who don't look like you. I was in a computer store a few years ago because we had an old hard drive that we couldn't access anymore and it was the only place we had a whole bunch of old pictures. My wife said, we've got to get this working. So I took it to this computer store, and I walk in, and the guy behind the counter looks Middle Eastern, has an accent. Talk to him, tell him the deal. He takes it in, says, come back in a week, come back in a week, and strike up another conversation. Is it ready? Well, we've got it working, but we haven't transferred it to the new drive. Come back tomorrow. We'll have it uh, ready to go. Great. I said, by the way, I noticed your accent. Beautiful. Where are you from? He said, Afghanistan. I thought, Afghanistan? How long have you been here? Three months. Three months? How did you get a visa to come to the United States? He said, oh, I was a translator for the US Army. So at the end of my time, it's not safe for me to live there anymore. So they gave me a visa to come to the United States. I said, oh, well, thank you for what you did for our troops. I said, are people nice to you here? Do you like it? He said, oh, I like it, but people are not nice to me here. I said, they're not, why not? He said, I'm from Afghanistan. My name is Mohammed. It's not the name he uses now. I said, well, as a follower of Jesus, I just want you to know I'm glad you're here. Could we be friends? He said, oh, you're my first American friend. So I just started going over there. Took him out to eat. He thinks guacamole is really nasty. <laughs> He's not touching that stuff. We had some great conversations. Then he moved off to Arlington and 
doing some other stuff, we still stay in contact. I don't know if he'll ever become a follower of Jesus, but I do know this. I won't even know a follower of Jesus loves him. I don't have to lead him the whole way, but I sure can invest in him while I have him or nearby. You know that Pakistani guy who runs the convenience store? Or the, the Vietnamese lady who does your nails? You know most people who look like you treat them like furniture? Or machinery? It's just so easy to be kind, to show an interest in somebody's life, to treat them like people made in the image of God. You just never know who God has put in your life. If you just have eyes to see people instead of races. So despite how disorienting the news sounds or how much fear we sometimes are finding cropping up in ourselves, it's such a great time to be alive and love Jesus. God's redeeming every people, race, tribe, and tongue, and he's just asking us, come out here with me. Come on out here with me. This is awesome. You're not going to believe the opportunities here in front of you. God just wants you to stop being afraid. Trust he's in charge and join his mission to redeem the world.